Let's turn together to the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, Thank you. chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. Over the summer, we've covered a lot of ground uh, just as a congregation and um, going through the letters to the churches in Revelation uh, here on Sundays and then in our community groups. And when we talked about confession, repentance, fear, materialism, relationships, abiding, career, comparison, idolatry, expectations. I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot in one summer. And, uh, and I really believe that, uh, that God stirred up some good things in us, and uh, He always finishes what He starts. And so, uh, in kind of praying about where to go between now and once we get into a more steady rhythm of the fall, I just kind of felt like revisiting some of those things from the summer groups would be a beneficial thing. And, um, you know, in, in trying to, to discern what topics to cover in those times, you know, we really just uh, kind of come to the Lord, you know, and you're like, okay, um, there's no way that any of us in leadership can discern in our own just assessment, like, what, what does this group of people need, you know? Um, and the Lord, His individual shepherding of everyone and, and His corporate shepherding of everyone, He just, He knows what's going to meet the needs of the people and um, and so Meg and Chris and I, um, Chris Cole, uh, we met and we kind of worked through some of the content for the summer groups and, um, and really it felt like between uh, like the relationships, abiding, materialism, and career stuff, that, that there's a, kind of this simmering sense of unhappiness within our congregation, kind of in, in those areas of life. Some of that comes from just conversational stuff. Some of it comes from um, what your community group leaders are giving us to just feedback on, just some general things that come up a lot. And, and so we kind of attack those things. And, and really, uh, so within, within a given night, you would talk about how comparison and idolatry and expectations mess with you in that, that particular area of life and kind of went from that direction. And I'm going to come from the other angle um, so for the next three weeks, um, I'm going to talk about comparison tonight and um, idolatry next Sunday and then expectations not being met the following. Because I think it's, it trips us up so much and not in a, not in a way of like, um, like, I apologize if people really love Joel Osteen, but not in this Osteen-ish, like that camp of thinking where you're like, God just wants you to be happy and smile all the time and like all that kind of stuff, that that's his ultimate will for your life. I, I, don't think that, I don't think that God gets upset with us when we're happy, but there's some stuff that should make us sad, you know? Like we should be, we should be irritated with some of the things, especially over the last, man, over the last two weeks, there's just some crazy stuff that's going on in our world. We should get upset by some of this stuff, you know? And so we can't just say, well, put on a happy face when you're, when you're dealing with some of the things that we've been bombarded with in the news that's happening um, you know, all around us all the time. And so I think, I'm not trying to say like, man, God wants us to be just happy and all smiles all the time. And so we just need to do whatever we need to do to just be happy in those things. Um, but I do think that, that there's a battle for contentment in, the, in a sense of like fullness and abundance that God has for you in those ways. Um, 
Some people hear contentment and they think complacency, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, like, do you really think that in, in different areas of life that we're really living fully? And when Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give you uh, life to the full, give it to you in abundance, uh, that's not just a salvation thing. That's a life in general thing. That there's a, a contentment and a fullness and a, a peaceful shalom that, that should exist in regard to career, in, in regard to our possessions, in regard to the relationships he has us in, and even in our relationship with him. Uh, but it seems to be something that we struggle with a good bit, is really kind of settling into that peaceful existence you know, across life. So we just kind of pick those four areas because that, that tends to be it. But there, there are certainly other options. Um, and so what I want to do in the next three weeks is focus from the other direction and spend a whole night talking about how comparison just is ripping us apart sometimes, um, and kind of dealing with that. And so in, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, uh, this is going to be the text for the next three weeks, and so we'll be increasingly familiar with this passage, you know, but the thing about comparison that's so weird is that, is that we learn it, we learn it very early on, you know. Um, it's, it's something we learn in school, like you're, you know, you, it's, it's putting the, the accomplishment star charts up, you know, and very quickly, you're able to figure out kind of where you stack up in the classroom, you know, or grades being posted somewhere, and, you know, that kind of stuff, and on the sports teams, and getting picked for kickball, and like all these kind of things we learn at a very young age that we're constantly, we're looking around us and trying to figure out within the pack, you know, what's, what's my role here? Am I the smart kid? Am I the athletic kid? Am I the funny kid? Am I the artsy kid? Am I the kid who cries a lot? Am I the kid who beats people up a lot? Am I the... The, you know, do I withdraw? Am I, you know, like all this kind of things. You're trying to kind of figure out, and we do that by just comparing. And it doesn't take you long where you figure out kind of where you are. And, um, like, I remember the the president's physical fitness challenge thing. You you guys grew up doing this? Uh, And you had to make, like, the, I think it was the 85th percentile on stuff. Am I right? Any PE teachers? Is that right? All right. Let's go with 85th. So, um, we're not a real feedback congregation. That's okay. Uh, 85th percentile or something like that. And you would do this stuff. Like when, like when I was young, we had the, it was the 600-yard dash. But I don't know if it was everywhere or that's just that's all the ground we had. You know? But we ran like between these two poles like three times. Uh, it was terrible. You had the 50-yard dash, which was not as terrible. You had the shuttle run, which is like go pick up those blocks, you know, that kind of thing. And you had to do sit-ups and all these other stuff. The worst, in my opinion, was pull-ups. Because I couldn't do them. Um, and so, but, the, but it was like the whole, you just line up, and then one at a time you'd have to go up and see how many pull-ups you could do. And I could do one, and that's mostly because I was jumping. So like my upward momentum kind of carried me up above the bar, and then I would come down, and then it was just, you couldn't kick your legs or swing or do any of that cheating stuff. And So I would like, I would, you know, max out at one, 1.5 maybe. Uh, but there was this kid in my class, his name was, was Chris. I won't tell you his last name because some of you are probably related to him or something. Um, and it, it, he could do like a thousand. Like, I'm not even kidding. Like, the, they would just stop him eventually. Like, fine, all right, fine. 85th percentile. You got it. No problem. It was just like, like, just nothing. Like, he was just like, just tell me when to stop, you know. And we're all over there. We're crying. We're sore. We pulled muscles. We're whatever. And it became very clear very quickly that Chris was the best pull-up person on the planet. 
and I was the worst, you know, that kind of thing. You kind of had that, that feeling of stacking it up, and then the girls, they were lucky because they just had to hang. Like, Remember this? You would jump up, and you would just wait and wait and wait. And there was this girl named Bridget, and she could wait for eternity, you know. And all the other girls hated it because Bridget was so awesome. And so um, all that to say, it doesn't take us long or a little to learn to, like, compare and figure out where we, where we fit into the pack. And some of that we grow out of, all right? I no longer worry about how many pull-ups I can do. Um, it's still one, no big deal, whatever. Uh, that's fine. But some of that we grow out of, but some of it we don't, you know? And some, some of it, as we get, get into middle school and high school and college and working and whatever, it, some, we kind of, like, retain a little bit of that. And it's one thing when you're a kid and it's about pull-ups, you know. It's different when you're an adult and it's about these big things in life where Jesus wants you to live in fullness and peace with him. And because of comparison uh, that we learned as a narrative when we were kids that we can't quite shake, uh, we're kind of walking in that sometimes. So Israel... We see this here in chapter 8. Israel, as a nation, had this same problem. And so, I'm, it's, it would be kind of long, but I'm going to read the whole chapter just to kind of get a, a sense of what's going on. And so you can follow along. Um, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways. But turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. (laughs) Very encouraging congregation there in Israel. Uh, Behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Okay, so just to recap really quickly, they want a king because all the other nations had kings. So they go to him and they complain, and God basically says, give them what they want, but you need to let them know exactly what that's going to look like, because they don't really understand what that's going to mean. So he goes to explain it in verse 10. Um, Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. 
He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He'll take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. All right, paints a super grim picture of what they're really asking. And then verse 19, they respond, uh, The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. You'll notice right there where we just finished verse 19. said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's, that's them looking at the surrounding nations and seeing something that they have, that these other nations have, that Israel does not, and, and they want it. They're convinced that if, if, if that could only be the case for them, then that would somehow legitimize them. You know? They'd be a real nation if they had a king. Now God tells Samuel, he's like, look, remember they're rejecting me as their king. And that's the whole, that's a part of the narrative of Israel that we have to remember is that, um, that God's plan was for him to be their king. All the other nations had earthly kings who did this kind of stuff. You know, they, they took advantage of people and they were, they were a picture of injustice and greed and all these kinds of things. That's how the earthly kings were working. And God said, you're going to be different in a lot of ways. And one of them is that I'm going to be your king. I'm going to take care of you. And they rejected that plan because they looked at the other nations and said, we want to be like them and not like us. So Israel struggled with comparison. Um, it seems kind of silly, maybe at times, but when we think about our own, like how we get caught up in it as well, it kind of makes a little bit of sense. For us, uh, this summer, we talked about um, a couple of areas of life. Let me give you some examples. Um, one of them was materialism and just our stuff, you know. That comparison, like very easily, like, trips us up with that, you know. So you have... You have something, someone else has the newer version of that, the bigger version of that, the, the you know, whatever. And so in that comparison, you're kind of like, well, man, I wish I had that. It must be nice to have that. Sometimes it's about possessions. It could be, it could be, it could be electronics. It could be a wardrobe. You know, it could be whatever. It could be, um, it could be how much money someone makes. You know? You're like, man, we're the same age, but this person makes like X number of dollars more than me. Well, that's weird. I wish I made that much money. I wish I could afford to do this and this and this. And maybe, some, maybe sometimes it's just a general lifestyle, you know. Man, you look, you look at that person's life or that family's life or whatever, and you're like, man, they, they got it made. And then us, we don't have it made. So you, think, you really think that that's God's plan for your life in regard to the things he's entrusted to you? No? None of us would be like, no, that's, that's exactly what God wants. He wants us to be insecure and compare ourselves to other people and then uh, 
Basically, let's sink ourselves way into debt so we can look just, just like them or just like them or just like them. So we can live a certain way and whatever. Let's live beyond our means just so that we can fill our lives with these possessions and pleasures and whatever. No, that's, no, one, no one who's a Christ follower would say, yes, that is exactly what the Bible describes. You know? But sometimes it's, it's how we think. You know? um, we also talked about career and work. Um, and they kind of overlap a little bit, maybe sometimes with salary, you know, where you just feel like, man, I don't... I just wish I made more money. I wish I made as much as this person and I could provide this kind of lifestyle for me or family or whatever. And sometimes it's, it's really it's about fulfillment. You know, you see other people who, they just they love their jobs, you know. Like they, they hate, hate the weekends because they're away from their coworkers or what they get to do. And they're so, they're so fulfilled by what they're doing, you know. So you see that and then you kind of are like, man, I hate my job. I love the weekends. I kind of wish I would get fired just so I wouldn't have to like go to work anymore because I hate this job so much. So sometimes it's, it's, like, uh, it's about like how much money people are making, but other times it's deeper than that. You know? It's like, man, I don't understand how my job makes the kingdom real in any possible way. I don't understand what's redemptive about what I do, you know, that kind of stuff. And so then you kind of walk away, just feel, you know, you feel weird about it. Or, um, or maybe, you know, maybe, you're, maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. And there's a struggle that exists there sometimes, you know, with, with that and um, kind of just like wondering, you know, like when we, when we talk about like living missionally and loving your coworkers, and you're like, I don't have any coworkers, you know, I have a toddler, you know. Uh, well, our, the kingdom perspective would be like, yeah, that's your coworker, all right, y'all are working all day long together uh, and, and all that kind of stuff. But that's an insecurity that can certainly pop up, you know. Or if one family, if you believe God's brought you to a place of, of, having a stay-at-home parent, but then your best friends, they're both working, you know, sometimes that causes this weird comparative tension there, you know. So instead of both families celebrating the fact that, man, God brought y'all to a conclusion, he brought us to a conclusion, how awesome that he shepherds us, it ends up being this comparative, like, weird whatever, you know. And other times, you have, and I would say especially men, you know, there's this idea of, um, I should be the sole provider for my family and all that kind of stuff. And so sometimes when you have a husband and a wife who, who both need to work in order to bring in the, the income and stuff like that, sometimes the, the guy feels like, man, his buddies who have jobs that pay a certain amount of money and then their wives are able to stay at home, that that's what they should be. And then you even, I mean, you have like, there's a whole theological thread of teaching out there that pushes that so hard, you know? So if you listen to the wrong podcast or listen to read the wrong books and the wrong blogs and stuff, you can start thinking as a husband, not only is that like, man, it would be ideal for this, but whatever, you're also feeling like you're failing God's design for the family when he never said that in the Bible. And like, not to beat up Mark Driscoll, but like, he's such a loud voice for that, but that's not a biblical thing necessarily. The Bible pushes obedience and so do what God's calling you to do for your family and own it, you know. But when we're hung up in comparison, it just, it, things get weird sometimes. And it builds up this tension within us. Either sometimes it's internal, sometimes it's between maybe you and your spouse, and sometimes it's between, between families uh, with one another where there's this unspoken, like, envy and resentment that builds up, which is totally dumb, but it happens, you know. So we talked about materialism, we talked about work. Uh, relationships. Comparison. You ever you ever look at somebody's family and be like, man, I wish that was my family. That, those, 
your parents are awesome. My parents are terrible. You, know, you, ever, you ever hear that kind of thing? Well, it happens all the time. Some families, like they're just, they have that like strength about them, and it's sometimes easy for people to feel like, to spot the deficiencies in their own upbringings and stuff when they're comparing themselves to other people's families. If you're in your marriage, have you ever compared yourself to another married couple? You ever, you ever compared your kids to someone else's kids? You ever look at, at maybe your kids are the same age as someone else, and like, you're like, man, that kid, that kid can do like, a thousand pull-ups. My kid can only do one. You know? <laughs> that kind of stuff. But that's, that stuff happens. And it's a foothold. It gets, it, it gets in there and it messes with you so much. And your relationships and your friendships. You know, you ever look around and you're like, man, everybody has best friends but me. Man, every weekend, people are all, always hanging out and doing stuff, but, but not me. That, that stuff is real. It, it's, they're real hang-ups that we have. And it's a lot of it is because we're comparing our lives to other people's lives so much that the enemy is able to come in and create that little foothold and start to whisper to us that it's deeper than that. That with materialism and with relationships and with career and with all these things, it's, it starts off being like, oh, you know, look at that difference. What does that say about you? It says that you're a loser. It says that God is not provided for you the way that he should. It says that you don't have what it takes to do this. It says that he's holding out on you and he's blessing all these other people. There are these deep, deep lies that come from comparison. And even when we talk about abiding this summer, I don't know if that topic went in the direction that, that it, I don't think it did the same thing twice. And I think that uh, it's something we don't talk about a whole lot. But... Comparison will kill a church in the ways I've talked about, but also when it comes to abiding life. Because if you look at someone else and you're jealous of their prayer life or their disciplines or the gifts that they have and the ways that they contribute to the body of Christ, man, that, is, that will cripple us. It will, it will really, really weaken our ability to be effective as a community and as a family if there's this strife that's happening because of comparison. There are a lot of other areas I could cover, but I think you, I think you get what I'm talking about. Um, Teddy Roosevelt said that comparison is the thief of joy. And I think we all know what he's saying. That when we get hung up in these things and we're, we're trying to figure out where we, where we stack up and we're looking at other people's lives and we're examining them and then we're comparing our lives to them and we're finding ways, sometimes when we think we're superior to other people, and sometimes when we think we're inferior to them, we're trying to figure out where in the hierarchy do I, do I fall. It robs us of the joy of living the life that Jesus has freed us to live because we're focused on this, these weird things. And so whether, whether comparison sends you, makes you feel less than or whether it makes you feel greater than, it's a problem, right? It's a problem. Israel had a problem because they felt less than the other nations around them because they didn't have a king and because God wasn't doing a good enough job being their king. So you're like, man, everybody else got these kings. We want a king. And Samuel says, you're going to hate this king. And you're like, oh, we don't care. We, we just want one. Because we, come, we become convinced that that will legitimize us somehow. So, 
now that uh, hopefully we're all convinced that this is an issue in some way, some degree or another, what do you, what do, you do about it? Where do, you, where do you go from here? Um, let, me give you, let me give you two, two walkaways from this. Um, the first thing is that you need to discern what, what is really happening with you when this, when this is going on. When you identify, you're like, man, I'm, I'm unhappy. I'm living less than, less than abundantly in this area of life, and it's because of comparison. You have to figure out what's, what's really happening in that moment, in your, in your mind and your heart. It could go down, like there's, there's like kind of one of, of two uh, paths that, that this could go down. One is, uh, one is very, very good. The other is very, very not good. All right? The very, very good one, uh, sometimes those feelings that we have um, can, it, it feels like comparison in a weird way, but what, it actually, what, as, at, uh, what is actually happening is that you're being challenged by someone else's life. So it can be a really healthy and holy challenge that come, it's coming from the Lord when you're looking at someone else's life. The other path is a very sinful and unhealthy comparison that's coming from your own flesh. Right? So in those times when we, we look at someone else's life, it could be one of those two things. Let's talk about the good one first. The good one, um, I experienced this several years ago, uh, or really more than several now, but uh, when we started the ring, uh, I was a college, I was in my first senior year of college. Um, I had two. And so uh, I was an intern at Parkview Baptist, so like Chris and Andrew, I was like doing that deal. And we started this worship service for college students. And at the time, I was doing the music, someone else was doing the teaching. And we went on a trip to the Passion Conference in 1999. And uh, we took whomever we had, and it was like 40 or 50 of us, I guess, and went to this conference. And, and it was like, it was probably for most of us the first exposure we ever had to like this kind of like music type stuff. And really, really strong preaching in that kind of a dosage, you know. So I'd been in, in really good worship experiences and really good teaching experiences on a Sunday, you know. But this was like four days of just like being bombarded with just amazingness or whatever. And you just couldn't handle it. And God was doing so much and stirring things up. And so I was the intern. And as God was stirring people up, the guy who was doing the teaching at the ring, he would have this line of people that wanted to talk to him about what God was doing. And I had nobody, you know. And it made, me, it made me really mad, you know. And there's a part of me that was like, I'm the intern. People should be coming to me. I'm the intern, you know. Uh, and, then it, and then it went deeper than that. And it began, I began to let it speak to my identity and saying, like, nobody trusts you. Nobody wants your counsel. Nobody cares what you have to say. Nobody respects you. Nobody this, nobody this, nobody this. And that guy, he's got everything that you don't have, you know, that kind of thing. 
And so there I was. I was in a place where comparison was, was destroying me in that moment. And I wasn't mature enough to, um, to understand what was happening, but it felt, like, it felt like that sinful kind of comparison, like the other trajectory. But what it was is it was the, it was the good kind, because what started off as, me, as envy, the Lord took it and rerouted it and helped me see what was going on. Um, not in the moment. It was many, many, it was much later than that. But I realized what was going on is that God was, he was using someone else's faithfulness and giftedness and the way that he has, had blessed them to challenge me to grow and to mature. So comparison is not always sinister and evil. That when it's coming from the Lord, it's really, it's in the same camp of conviction. So I was looking at his life, and at first it was just, it was weird comparison. But as I processed it, I realized that God was trying to say, hey, look at his faithfulness. And grow. And morph. And change. See, that's sometimes what happens is, in our comparison to someone else, in materialism, let's say, maybe what we're, what we're seeing is people who are really good stewards of their money. You know, Maybe they have created margin in their lives, and they're able to give and to support things, and they're able to, to do certain things because of their good stewardship. Maybe we're jealous of relationships that are really strong, friendships or family, because they've worked. They've worked hard to reconcile well. And they pursued biblical conflict resolution. And they pray together. And there's a strength that happens in the trenches. And that's why those friendships are so strong. That should challenge us. Maybe when someone like this guy was gifted. He was a gift to the college ministry. To see that and be like, man, I, I aspire to be more like that. There are times when that comparison is, is good. So, if comparison is getting you, and you know, you know the area of life it is, whether it's one I used or not, and you know the people that you're struggling with, you need to figure out, is God using their example to spur me on to love and good works, like he said he would? Is that what's happening? And if it is, then you go down that road, and you confess, and you repent, and you trust Him, and you obey Him, and you process that, that kind of stirring in the ways that you know to be true. Because God didn't give us the spirit of a coward who runs away from a battle. He gives us His spirit of power, love, self-control. So you attack it, you run down that road. So it may surface as envy or resentment or some weird jealousy at first, but maybe God has goodness in there. Maybe the person that you are... Um, that you're jealous of and that you're envying, maybe it's because they're doing something right. And he wants to bless your socks off and using them as an example, bring you down that road. Okay? So that's, the, that's the healthy way. So don't think just because comparison is a, is a thing for you that you are like the worst person ever. Okay? Maybe God is really stirring something very healthy in you. Um, so that's the, that's the healthy way. The other kind, which may be where you are, is when you're comparing yourself to someone like Israel was doing, and you've bought into this lie that there's some sort of deficiency in God's care for you or in who you are in your own identity, and until this particular thing happens, until your life looks like their life, 
uh, you're going to be incomplete. That's what Israel was thinking. And that's what they failed to see, and sometimes that's what we fail to see. So what do you do when, that, when that's the case? Let me give you three, three quick things. One, thank Jesus for them. Like, you pray for them. Okay? So if I am sinfully comparing myself to, let's say, I'll use Byron Townsend here, the pastor at Grace. If I'm looking at him and I'm sinfully comparing myself to him, it's not the good kind, okay? Let's say it's, it's the other kind. And I'm buying into all this kind of stuff. The, the first thing I should start doing is to pray for him and thank God for blessing him that way. Think about how that flips it upside down for us sometimes. If you're jealous that someone else is more gifted than you in ministry and you start to pray and thank God for the gift they are, it, it's really hard to remain self-centered and prideful when that's truly happening. If your best friend is being blessed in a way that you perceive to be like more significant than you financially or with stuff or with whatever it is, thank, God, thank you so much for giving him that job. Thanks for giving him the brain that understands how to do that. Thank you for that. Thank you for giving us prayer warriors in our community group. Thank you for giving us people who just memorize scripture like it's the easiest thing in the world. Thank you for people who are servant-hearted. Thank you for people who can teach. Thank you for people who are wired up in ways that I wish I was. Thank you for the for taking care of them in that way. That will, that will break that prideful stuff down in you if you will begin to pray for them and thank God for the way he takes care of them. That's the first thing I would say. Second thing I would say is this. Um, you need to get better at uh, like social media comparison bull that we all fall into. So if your comparison is tied to Facebook in some weird way, then you need to get off of Facebook. And it happens all the time. It happens all the time. Somebody you went to high school with posts a picture of their new house, and it's like, it's the governor's mansion, practically, you know? And you're like, what in the world do you do for a living? Why in the world, uh, how's that work? Someone posts pictures of their kid and something that they did or something that they got or whatever. And so-and-so's third birthday party. And look, we got him a Corvette, you know. And you're like, oh, what in the world? How's that work? So do you go into debt and buy your kid a Corvette? No. Three-year-olds don't need Corvettes. Okay, you know, whatever. But that stuff messes with you. And so you got to have the self-control to know this is bad for me. This is feeding my comparison issues. So I need to not look at their Instagram feed or follow them on whatever, whatever. It is for you. you that has to, it has to be enough of a priority for you to realize that you're not going to miss out on a single good thing in all of life by being off of Facebook. In fact, you'll miss out on a, on a bunch of dumb things. But that's a hang-up for you. That would be my second thing, is find the practical things that are contributing to that comparison and figure out what do I need to fast from for a while in order to sort through this. That's the second thing. So pray for them and thank God for them. Second thing, Figure out where your hang-ups are and be disciplined enough to get rid of them. Here's the third thing. Here's the thing that Israel didn't do. Israel failed to, they failed to understand 
that you have all these nations on the planet, and God looked at their country and said, you are mine, and I'm going to take care of you. They were hung up comparing themselves to all these other people, and they failed to recognize the uniqueness that is Israel, that they were separate from everyone else, and they were set apart from everyone else. They didn't own their identity as being his. And I think this is the meat of it for us. When we're comparing ourselves to other people, we're forsaking the uniqueness of his shepherding and his call on our lives. We're we're forgetting the fact that he has a plan for each of us. And for some people, that means making a lot of money. For some people, it means not making a lot of money. For some people, it means getting married. And for some people, it doesn't mean getting married. And for some married couples, it means having kids. And for other people, it doesn't mean having kids. And for some, it means public school. And for some, it means private school. And for some, it means homeschool. You know? For some, it means living in Zachary. And some in Prairieville. And some in Baton Rouge. And there's this uniqueness there with all these different things. Israel, they wouldn't own it. They wouldn't embrace it. They just wanted to be like everybody else. And I think that it's dangerous sometimes when we individualize our faith too much. Okay, So don't, let's not overcorrect. But sometimes it's too corporate and we neglect the fact that he has a plan for you. He loves you and he cares about you. And he's able to guide your life and care for your soul and your mind. He's able to guard you and protect you and finish what he started in you. So I've, it has to come down to saying, like, man, I'm comparing myself to someone, and I'm, I'm forsaking that individual lordship. And that's the thing. This is not a happiness issue. This is a lordship issue. I'm saying he is lord over, over my life. He's lord over our lives, yes. But my, my life, too. And what he has for me, I will not forsake. I will not reject him as my king. I'll recognize that he has set me apart. That he is perfectly able to guide my life and guide every life on the planet all at the same time in fullness and in power and perfection with the kind of precision that we can't even fathom. And so if this is a hang-up for you, recognize that it's a rejection of his lordship. And the way that we flip that around is we embrace it, and we own it, and we treasure it. And that becomes how we pray through this. So maybe God, through comparison, is, is trying to sanctify you and using someone else's faithfulness to challenge you and grow you. Maybe that's your trajectory. Maybe it's the other kind. Maybe, there, maybe it's sinful. The good, this amazing thing about him is that we don't have to like take these 12 steps and then we can kind of get back in, on track. Like He's immediate. And embracing and owning of his lordship is immediate. It's as simple as a conversation with him, as a response to him. So I don't know where this meets you, but I know it meets you somewhere, because that's why he had us talk about it. And I don't know where all these songs meet you, but these are the ones he had us sing. And so we're going to just take a second and respond a little bit. So let's stand together as I pray.
I'm just going to read part of Psalm 139 over us as a prayer and as a response. But I want you just to hear the, hear the personal care. You know, we talk a lot about the 23rd Psalm, and, uh, and it's amazing. It totally applies here. Here's another, another Psalm of David that um, I think really speaks. And so if comparison is an issue for you, and, and really this probably just across the board, I think an ownership and an embracing of his care for us is where we need to be. So let's just close our eyes and bow our heads and let me just read this over us and then we'll sing a little bit and respond. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind, and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me uh, be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.